You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review. It's already late in the week, Thursday, May the 23rd, and it feels like we're just getting started. So much going on. We had a terrific guest yesterday, so I have a lot of my freelance stuff I didn't uh, get out to you guys, and so much truth that is just bubbling up in me and needs to get out, because that's what we're here for. We are here to keep everyone focused on what's important and speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Um. You know, I understand that people have different talents in conservative media. People have different focuses. There's a limit to what one person could do. And certainly I know from my end, there's tons of important stories I would love to get to. I just don't have the time. So certainly you can't uh, assume that anything I don't cover isn't important because there's a lot of things... I can't even get it. I don't even have time to cover it. And I know it's very important. You got to prioritize. And sometimes I do a better job. Sometimes I get down rabbit holes like we all do. But what I can't understand is if we have something that is a level 99, a level 100 in terms of importance, importance on a scale from 1 to 100, and we have something that's a level 1 to 10, they're going to focus 100% of their efforts on what's not important. So it was Mueller for two years, and now it's going to be the taxes, the subpoenas. It's all about defending Trump on these like quasi-alleged scandal stuff, but there's no end to it. I, I never felt like we had an era on politics like this where we're fighting over nothing. Usually. There's something, at least a couple of very clear issues you're fighting over, where there's a very clear battle line drawn, very clear distinctions in terms of direction of the country. Now, obviously, in order to hamstring your opponent, you're going to dig up political stuff and you're going to fight over that to a certain extent. But we live in an era where 100% of the focus is on what's not even a fight. And even the stuff we claim to fight over, everyone's in agreement. So like, I'm watching this Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing on resources at the border, need, need, you know, necessary resources at the border. Kevin McAleenan, the acting DHS secretary, is testifying. Now, this guy's a registered Democrat. He's a big liberal. He doesn't believe in deporting anyone. God bless Mark Morgan, my friend, for you know becoming ICE director. He's got his hands cut out, his work cut out for him. I mean, his hands will be chopped off from <laughs> in front of him uh, by this guy who will officially be his boss. Um, I know many of you might have seen uh, articles that McAleenan supported Morgan because he respects Morgan's law enforcement career. But I don't think he realizes Morgan's views. <laughs> and when he does realize, you know, he's going to have a challenge. But I'm just listening to him. And it's like the humanitarian crisis. 
It's the same talking points as the left. And then you look at the Republican senators on the committee. Rand Paul was asking about, oh, why is this university in Kentucky turned down foreign students? They, they're denied the request for foreign student visas. And uh, he has some sort of question about privacy of checking cell phones at customs. I mean, really? You got a DHS oversight hearing and we have an invasion at our border? I mean, that... But that's what it is. It's like you have so much acrimony between so-called Republicans and Democrats, between conservative media and the liberal media, but it's either over nonsense or they kind of agree on everything, and ultimately, the left wins on everything. I keep getting back to the core issues. Look at 2015 when Trump ran. Border apprehensions were about 38,000. Now it's 110,000, but it's really, it may as well be a million because qualitatively, the cascading effects are much worse. The debt is trillions of dollars more. Spending is higher than ever, and they're going to go up and up. Judicial supremacism is winning more than ever. Um, you look at foreign policy, and still our resources are, the do's and don'ts are so flipped on its head. The do's and don'ts in terms of what we should be doing on foreign policy and military intervention is so flipped around that now it's hurting us even when we have an opportunity to crush Iran in the right way. You know, it's very muddled because people are tired from these phony operations in the past. You know, we're at war in seven countries. Seven countries. Niger, the U.S. Army is rebuilding Afghan fire bases. So it's Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, and Niger. We're, still, we're at war in these. Why? See, I wouldn't be in any of these countries, so then it wouldn't be a big deal to deploy 5,000 troops to saber rattle against Iran, which again, the idea is not to do nation building there, but just to crush them with soft power. But even some of my allies you know, are suspicious of that, and rightfully so. I understand it, because we're wasting so much time on this. Even on regulations, healthcare is worse than ever. That's the biggest regulation. Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, they're still there. All the big ones, ethanol, thriving more than ever. It's these little things he got rid of that were the late-hour Obama things at the very end, and a lot of them, guess what? The courts. So on what measure are things getting better? Again, don't take it personal with who to blame and who not to blame. Some of it is Trump's dysfunction. Other things are a mixture of, of the lack of a, a movement. And that's what I'm saying. Even if you had the best president, you, you, you could put Louis Gohmert in the White House. There's a limit to what you can do if you don't have a movement that's freaking focused. It takes a movement. Obama didn't accomplish what he did because he was Obama. He didn't create the movement. The movement created him. So let's go one by go go down one by one the issues going on. And let's talk about outcomes. So I just have an article out. I'm sure by now a lot of you have seen this. Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri 
is the only one who's actually vetting these judicial nominees to see if they're actually, you know, like a conservative. So think about this. The Senate's doing nothing. Okay, nothing. They literally don't do anything. There's no work on sanctuary cities. There's no work on the border. Nothing but spend more money. The entire purpose, we're told, is to confirm more judges. Okay, that, that's the purpose of the Senate. Mitch McConnell will tell you he doesn't want to do anything because he doesn't want to chew up floor time uh, that could be allocated towards expediting the confirmation of more judges. Okay. Now, they won't do anything to push back against the premise of judicial supremacism and even rhetorically reclaim some of that lost power from the courts. It's all about putting in our guys. So if this is everything, if this is life and death, shouldn't we at least know that we're getting judges that at least adhere to our legal principles on the core most imminent issues in the court system right now. Like, I, I mean, I said this throughout the Kavanaugh hearings and, and Gorsuch. I was like, okay, what's the biggest thing we're getting hit on in the courts? Immigration, sovereignty, the loss of the plenary power doctrine, that the political branches alone set immigration policy. I was saying, well, ought we get some sort of commitment from, um, you know, you know, maybe Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, the nominees themselves as to where they stand on it. Not on a specific case, but principally ask them about this case law and say, is it good law? Is it still good law? Um, it's that simple. It is that simple. Yet we didn't do that. And we got screwed on a massive criminal alien case with Gorsuch. Kavanaugh has joined with Roberts not to grant cert to some of these appeals on the border issues. It's like, we just have a name. Trump nominee. And, and, we, and they have all these tallies. A lot of you are asking me, Daniel, well, isn't it getting better? We're on the cusp of flipping the Ninth Circuit. I'm like, you idiot. You're looking at R versus D appointees. You got to investigate them. A lot of these are appointees, so again, my criticism is, as a baseline, a good judge is nowhere near a bad judge. So even if they're good, they might not initiate these rulings, but they're not going to push back against them. They're going to indulge the existing precedent, and the other side is going to cheat, so you can't win a system like that. That's my main thesis. But then there's a whole bunch of these that are literally liberals. We don't realize that. So Josh Hawley's getting in, and he's like, he's the only senator that's doing this. He's like, well, we all say we're originalists, right? So okay, um, I'm assuming you believe Roe v. Wade is crap. And Obergefell, oh, you, you can't have a litmus test. Well, I thought, uh, I mean, how could you be a originalist? I mean, like, what's going on here? So there was this guy, Bogren, okay? Michael Bogren. I don't know where he came out of, where he crawled out of, who decided to nominate him. But he was nominated for a district judgeship, Western District of Michigan. And this guy basically was the lawyer for the city of East Lansing when they they kicked out this guy, Steve Tennis, a Catholic farmer from the farmer's market. Okay, it was like a you know a city-run 
Trade Association, it kicked them out. Can't do business with us. Why? Because you're a hater. You're a discriminator. Bogren wrote, you know, was the counsel, so he wrote a brief in the case comparing him to the KKK. Again, I know he's not saying he's like the KKK, but he said in terms of legal standing, you know, it's just like you discriminate against blacks or women, so you discriminate against sexual orientation. And he said, this isn't Catholics need not apply. That's not what we're saying. The message is, quote, discriminators need not apply. This is not about religion. This is not about speech. Now, as you well know, behind creating a right to immigrate, probably the greatest threats in the courts now are codifying the homosexual, transgender, and whatever else. I mean, there's no difference. Meaning, if you could create your own immutable character tricks, I am gay, I am trans, I am this, I am questioning, I am bi, I'm lesbian, I'm this. So, I mean, I could say I'm bestiality, right? And 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 if you have someone who doesn't want to, if you have a farmer that has a piece of property, in this case, you know, you didn't want to perform a gay marriage on his property. I don't want to perform a marriage with a donkey on my property. Well, a state could kick you out of that, right? What is the difference between discriminating against that and gender? Okay? I mean, that that's the same thing. But that is a big part of the threat that they're basically saying everything we ever said about civil rights with blacks is the same thing. Well, you, you, you can't deny a black. Now... This guy tries to hide behind like, oh, you know, what do you want? We're not, we're not, you know, you're allowed to keep your beliefs. This is just government could decide they don't want to do business with you. Now, look, I am actually a real originalist on this that I think, yeah, I think, you know, you don't have necessarily an affirmative right to any um, business with the government. You have a right to be left alone. But there's two points on that. Number one, first of all, our, our our judicial system for decades has treated government contracts. I mean, you could file a frivolous discrimination claim for anything for not being chosen. So certainly if you openly say people with Christian beliefs, which is really every major religion until recently, you know, you're out. How is that not discrimination if, 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 if you're going to assume that you can't discriminate? But moreover... The, the point that this guy was making, so when Hawley confronted him at the hearing yesterday, confirmation hearing at Senate Judiciary, the guy was like, you know, he didn't say, look, I was just representing a client. He was very clear. He agreed with it. He said, look, you know, you cannot, you know, if you're discriminating, a state could say you can't discriminate. It's just like, you know, discriminating based on race and gender. The problem with that, with saying that is, it's not just government contracts. If you go by that legal rationale that Bogren is putting out, you know what that would mean? That would mean private property as well. That would mean, meaning, under existing law, can you say, you are black, I don't want to service you, I don't want to give you an opportunity to, you know, I'm offering wedding services at my farm, or I'm offer, I bake cakes, but you're black. I don't want to bake one for you. No, you can't do that. Now, again, look, I believe, you know, that was extraordinary times and, you know, because government did take away real unalienable rights. So you could say they had to overcorrect. It was a special 
exigent circumstance. But really, you know, this is why Barry Goldwater opposed Title VII, um, not because he was like a Southern Democrat. He wasn't, you know, for segregation and things like that. But, you know, he was worried about the, you know, is that really constitutional? And it clearly isn't. But nonetheless, I mean, that's how we treat the laws now. I wish I wish we would have the political will to just treat everyone equally now, but we don't. You don't have a right to access someone else's thing. Okay? But nonetheless, we said at least that's an immutable character trait, someone's race. Well, they're saying, well, to be gay is immutable, to be trans is immutable, to be anything is immutable. That's what this guy is saying. I mean, we have a guy that subscribes to the most liberal stuff being nominated as a Trump judicial pick. My question is, how many more were like this that we haven't vetted out? This is the second time Hawley stood up against someone. Why is there no one trying to vet these people out? It's like, it's like we get, it's like I open the door and anyone who opens the door punches me in the face. So by number 20, wouldn't you kind of like vet out if the guy's going to punch you in the face? Oh man, we got a problem with judicial activism. We need better judges. Oh, so presumably you're really going to make sure those picks are not subscribing to A, B, C, and D that we're dealing with in the courts. No, actually they're champions of those very things. Oh, whoops. So look, we're having a fight over, I mean, they're like, you know, getting rid of the blue slip tradition, right? That was the tradition where home state senators could block nominees put a hold on them and you know republicans are doing all these things to get these people confirmed we have all these fights with the democrats to what end we all agree to judicial supremacism as a baseline which is wrong the most dangerous notion we all you know and and then even among picking better judges so to speak a good number of them subscribe to a good number of bad stuff so what's the deal here there really is no difference. There really is no difference. I just, you know, another thing, everyone's talking about Don McGahn now, right? So, this was the former White House counsel. And as former White House counsel, he's being subpoenaed to testify before Congress. They're thumbing their nose at him. And they do this all the time. He's refusing to testify. Separate branch, executive privilege. So, like, everyone agrees in the context of fights with the more powerful legislature that the executive could fight them. But somehow a district judge is like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. Again, it reminds me of David French. And I'm sorry to keep beating up on him. It's just that he, you know, like me, he seems to be very prolific on writing about judicial opinions. And he complains about them. So last week he wrote an article about um, the the judicial resistance rescues DACA again. Right? Because the Fourth Circuit weighed in and said, oh, you know, he couldn't appeal DACA, repeal DACA. He violated the Administrative Procedure Act. And he ends off his piece... Um, in the meantime, the judicial resistance persists, and when one looks at its continuing influence at this late date in the Trump's, Trump's first term, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that it is succeeding. Lawless Obama and Clinton appointees have effectively blocked Trump's lawful acts. 
But how? It's because of people like you that agree. Me, me. <laughs> the irony is lost on them. They're like, this is nuts. They're, they're destroying Trump's lawful acts. And did it ever cross your mind? How could our framers have created such a flimsy system that any district judge has veto power over politics? It's retarded. The answer is there is no such system. They, they, they agree to the system. They're like, I mean, what do you want? You want to say any district judge has the power of God. He's very clear it's effective and it effectively terminates it. But bad boy, you had a bad opinion. Really? So it's just built on that? This is why I hate the term judicial activism. The problem is not judicial activism because they'll say, I disagree with your opinion. Your judge is doing activism. The problem is judicial supremacism. You could render an opinion and we could agree or disagree about it. You rendered an opinion in a, in a case or controversy. But the notion that you have jurisdiction over the actions of the other branches of government affecting broad public policy and you could mandate that funds be used a certain way, visas be meted out a certain way, marriage license, licenses be written a certain way. You don't have that power. It's not self-executing. Otherwise, our system doesn't make any sense. So there's that. On the, on the account of the, of, of the judiciary, there really is no difference between the parties. But I just wanted you to know, it's interesting... How, you know, Josh Hawley is the only guy that seems to be vetting them for, from the right, but yet we have Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Tim Scott and any number of Republicans vetting them from the left and trying to scuttle nominees that are, are actually real conservatives. So, um, so that's the story there. So next thing. I'd obviously be remiss if I don't address the Justin Amash business, the controversy over him, the fights between members of the Freedom Caucus, really resounding throughout conservative media. Some of you might have heard my monologue on Steve Dace's show yesterday, so this will somewhat be a repeat. But to me, this embodies the problem that's going on now and how we're all missing the point we're fighting over fighting. <laughs> And we're not fighting over anything meaningful because it's all a matter of a saga on a soap opera of taking sides on whatever the news media focuses on. It mean, it's not just binary idolatry. It's binary over, over nothingness. So, you know, you basically have two camps. One is bigger than the other. Of course, among most conservative commentators, people, whatever, they're going to be with Trump on everything. So they're bashing Justin Amash as the worst Republican around, and the biggest problem is Justin Amash for calling for Trump's impeachment. But then you have a cadre of people, some of them supporters of this show, that are making him seem like a big hero. He's the true conservative standing up to Trump, principled, intellectually honest, yada, yada. In my view, they're both missing the point. So let's first start with Justin. So you might think, well, Daniel, isn't Justin your guy? Doesn't he have a 90 Liberty score? So now it's important to remember what Justin is and isn't. And this is going to come into play when you understand his saving 
graces and what he's good at, good with. Justin Amash is quite a unique person, right? The thing I do appreciate about him is that he clearly is independent-minded. Now, he's not a conservative. He is a Cato libertarian. In my view, a progressive libertarian, but a libertarian nonetheless. So he doesn't consider himself a Republican at all, and he's always going to be a no vote on everything, which most things are bad, so he's going to have a high score. He's good on fiscal issues, but you know he is horrible on the border. He's horrible on crime. He's horrible. He's pro-Palestinian. Um, he's look nothing says libertarian like hey, let's pay for sex change operations in the military. Let's face it, the guy is not pro-life. I mean, he just isn't. Um, he just doesn't care about that. It's just not his thing, and he doesn't give a darn about our border. I mean, that that's the thing. Um, even intellectually honest people have their own biases. And that's why when Obama actively subverted our immigration laws and literally gave citizenship documents or citizen documents or legal permanent resident documents to aliens, he went ahead and 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 he did nothing about it. I never remember Justin worrying about this. Why? Because frankly, he agrees with the result. So, you know, everyone has their biases. Um, so to me, he's certainly not my hill to die on. And in fact, in many ways, he's emblematic of this progressive libertarianism that's taken over uh, the libertarian establishment and even a lot of the conservative establishment. And I'm not a fan. He is not my cup of tea. So... You know, like, I'm not into this, oh, this guy's the best thing. No, no. But with that said, with that said, look, if you're going to be like me and you're going to fight all of the rhinos, I have the right to be disappointed in Justin Amash on issues. But a lot of these other people, they don't say a word about Tom Tillis and they don't say a word about Tim Scott and Mitt Romney and all these guys. They're nowhere with me trying to primary these guys. Suddenly, when it comes to Justin Amash, a guy who at least is conservative on spending, at least is very transparent, and he has a lot of unique good qualities to him, as much as I vigorously can't stand some of his views, there's a saving grace to him. Really? That's the one guy we're going to go after in primaries. So Trump's now going to back Tillis, but the two guys we're going to go after are Justin Amash and Mark Sanford. He was a similar type of libertarian guy from South Carolina. Like, really? Really? Those are the two people? That's what I'm saying. We don't have an agenda here. We don't have an intellectually consistent agenda in any way. We, it's just all about, oh, the impeachment. Uh, okay, taking sides on this. But let's look at the fundamentals. If you looked at the fundamentals, if you're, if you're worried about Trump's agenda... Tillis has all of the problems that you see in Amash and none of the saving graces. Tillis opposed the declaration of an emergency, just like Amash would, but he's horrible on spending. Okay? Now, I don't like Justin Amash. Personally, I'm very rare on this because I'm one of the few people who cares about it because he's weak on crime, like these progressive Cato libertarians. But guess who's also weak on crime? Tom Tillis. He's on the Senate Judiciary Committee and voted for, for all the jailbreak. He pushed it. So why is there, no, where are all these like zealous, you're not with the president. 
Who? Uh, primary Amash. Okay, fine, fine. I could sure use you on the 10 Rhino Senators up for re-election in Red States. But it's monkey see, monkey do. Whatever, you know, a handful of conservative commentators tell me to focus on, I'll focus on. That's what bothers me about them. But again, on the same token, you know, some people are making this, oh, Justin Amash should run for president. I mean, dude, that guy literally doesn't believe in borders. <laughs> um, He is... He's very he's unique. You can't put him in a box. I'm just saying, like, I can't stand his views. I would never recruit people like him. I'm just saying, if you're going to go after people, the reality is the traditional establishment rhinos are just as anti-Trump as Amash, except A, they're not men enough to actually, you know, just be consistent about it, and B, there's no saving grace for them on other on other issues. So that's that's the story. With um, with with what's going on there. Um, by the way, also just again, just jumping back, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but in this Senate hearing, McAleenan admitted that most of these people aren't asserting a credible fear, and he said we still have to process. the The law says expedited removal. The law says in 1996. That anyone caught anywhere in the country, if they cannot prove they've been here to the satisfaction of an immigration officer for two consecutive years, guess what happens? They are immediately deported and it is unreviewable, not reviewable by anyone, not reviewable by an immigration judge, much less a federal judge. Whatever happened to that? What law do we need to fix? that could be stronger than the one already written. I mean, again, we're, we're putting aside the credible fear stuff that we have the power to turn that down, and they're not. And we have the power anyway to override it with an 1182F shutdown. But most of them aren't even asserting it. It's about 10,000 or so out of the 108,000 caught in April. That's about what we're tracking at. Oh, we still need a process. What do you mean the law prevents it? Now, the executive branch has never implemented expedited removal fully. But even, even the ones that, even the current reg, which they could change, is if you're caught at the border within 14 days, well, they're caught right away. So why aren't they placed in expedited removal? Because McAleenan doesn't believe in deporting families. Okay, so fine, but don't lie to me and hide behind law. I know some of you sent me emails. You're a little disappointed, and you know from Sheriff Leon yesterday that you know he kept saying we need to change the law. Congress needs to act. Look, I had him on to talk about the status at the border. He, he's not familiar with this. I mean, they, everyone, and and that kind of proves my point. They're telling everyone, very few people know immigration law. Dan Vara, the guy we had on Monday, he does. Very few do. So if you repeat a lie so many times, you seed the ground. Even our people are like, oh, I guess that's what needs to be done. So why isn't Congress acting? Nobody is, and this is what has been so damaging about this administration's line for the last 12 to 15 months. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. You're seeding laws that we worked years to pass, and you're unpassing them. By laying down that marker. 
So again, we're all fighting over nonsense. We're fighting over nothingness and emptiness. So, you know, that is that is the story. That is the story here. Now, I do want to come back to immigration for the latter part of the show, but I'm sorry to jump around here. I'm going to jump around to some other issues, then come back to immigration. So first, just to go back, and again, you know, this is live fire. Lots of, lot, lots of stuff is go, going on. And in order for me to do a show every day, I kind of have to, you know, continue just fighting the fight, record, um, go on to my next article, make more phone calls, gather more information, do more research, a lot going on. So, you know, even from when we started the show, it seems like now it's registered because my article came out on Josh Hawley and this guy, Michael Bergen, um, who is this, you know, nominee from Michigan for, for, for a judgeship. And, you know, the usual suspects, this close-knit group of people who are involved in selecting some of these nominees or some of their friends or the people that think like them in the legal community. So they're out with their full defense. Oh, we're making it up. We're exaggerating. We're smearing the guy. I mean, these are the people that are the guardians of the conservative legal movement. And, you know, it's funny because I was talking yesterday to a friend and they're like, yeah, I said, do you think this is going to be another... Um, Rao situation, the last nominee that they defended. And they're like, no, she was, you know, one of theirs, a Federalist Society person. Like this guy, Michael Bogren, is some random guy. No one ever heard of him. Um, but no, they're they're out there defending him. And what's amazing is their mentality. So some are saying, Oh, you know, what do you want from him? He was just doing his job as a lawyer, he's it's a client. Um, others are saying, What do you want? All the other options would be Democrats. We don't have any other options there. I'm getting some emails, seeing from people. Other people are saying, "Oh, Holly went overboard and you know, saying that Bogren was comparing Catholics to KKK. How could you say that? Bogren is a big Catholic himself, and they're all missing the point. So, two things: one on a legal point, and one a, a political point, and and then we'll we'll go on. I just think this is very important because I'm seeing all this pushback now. So number one on the legal point, and, and maybe, maybe Holly was you know trying to get a little bit showboating a little bit there. I don't know to try to push him on on exaggerate the point. I don't think Bogren in his mind thinks a farmer that doesn't want to or someone who has land that doesn't want to service a gay wedding is on par with the KKK. Okay, I, I know that in his mind, in terms of ethically or behaviorally, he's not going to think that. I know he was making a legal point. I get it. And that's exactly what I put in my article. I can't vouch for Holly or for others. I'm not accusing him of saying, oh, religious Catholics who are opposed to the homosexual agenda are just as bad as the KKK. Yeah, those are the pure Democrat nominees that think that. Exactly. And what is a Republican nominee? Someone who thinks legally you are as bound to serve them as you are, you know, in, in terms of denying service to someone for because of their gender or race. 
That is what he said. And he said it with certitude. It wasn't like, oh, I'm the client, they're my client and whatever. That's often what they say. Look, this is not how I'd rule as a judge. I'm a lawyer and I have to make arguments, which to me is bogus and which is why I hate that whole profession. Because to me, I'll never argue a position that I don't believe in. I just won't. I get it. I get the whole legal thing. But, you know, that's kind of why the whole legal profession is irremediably broken as it comes to constitutional construction. Think about it. You're Even if they're not purely liberal, but you're taking people and you're giving them, you're vesting them with the power, which they shouldn't have and don't have, but you're vesting them with the power to be God over the Constitution. Well, they spent the whole career giving all sorts of arguments for everything. So, I mean, you know, they don't have a sense of wrong or right. You know, look, there are some good lawyers. I get it. But, but anyway... I don't like that to begin with, but usually that's what they assert. It was just my client. Just my client. But in this case, he was very, very clear that he believes that there is no difference between, let's say, a KKK group saying they don't want to service a black versus a religious Catholic or Jew or Protestant or whatever else saying they don't want to Render a service to a gay wedding. And that is a very big problem. You can't deny he believes in that. He was very adamant about that. And if that doesn't bother you, then you are a problem. Still others are saying, oh, this is the best we can get. It's better than a Democrat. Uh, from Michigan, There's not. A, you, you have to understand. I know Ed Whelan wrote a whole article on... Um, He's one of the defenders here. He wrote a whole article on district court nominees in blue states. Um, you know, like, what do you want? So what, one of the points he made, and I want to clarify because I might have said something wrong. I said that they blew up the blue slip policy where Democrat home state senators could put a hold on it. It's not true. They blew it up for circuit court nominees, not for all district court nominees. So he's trying to say, look, this is part of a deal-making process that you have to make with the Democrats. Look, look, okay? This is the same thing we had with Kavanaugh and, and to a certain extent, Gorsuch, although clearly this guy is a lot worse, which is, oh my gosh, we're going to get our nominees. We're going to change the judiciary. And, and we're like, well, what do you mean? Let's fight judicial supremacism. You're, you, you're never going to change the system by just appointing Republican judges. No, you'll see, you'll see. Okay, fine. And then we come, and then we start asking, well, what does the guy believe on this? Well, it looks like he subscribes to homosexual jurisprudence. It looks like he subscribes to, you know, problems on on illegals having standing to sue. Well, what do you mean, Daniel? Uh, what, you expected that degree of an originalist? How do you expect to get the guy confirmed? So don't lie to me then. Fine, if you're going to tell me, look, Daniel, when we have the Senate and the presidency, we're going to get pound per pound better nominees than a Democrat would have gotten. Okay. But but we don't have the ability to get real originalists. That's very different than telling me we're on our way to change to winning the judicial fight. No, you're not. Don't don't lie to me. Meaning either way you're wrong. If you're going to tell me this is the best you can get, then I am right in saying that it's a fool's errand 
to put most of your eggs or all of your eggs in the judicial fight into a fake fight over noms when we all admit you're not changing anything anyway. So don't lie to me. Anyway, that's the story with that fake fight. So we have one big fake fight over the judiciary. But let me tell you, we're all fiscal conservatives. So, you know, we talked a little bit about Justin Amash and progressive libertarians. So, all right, we have this whole movement on the right, this new Fed with open borders, which has been that way for a while. We have this new Fed of being Michael Dukakis on crime. We have this new Fed of Republicans for the homosexual agenda. Um, there's a lot of interesting conservative views that I never heard of. But by golly, we're libertarian, so we're going to be for limited government. All right. Okay, at least we'll benefit from that. Well, I'm looking on Chuck Grassley's website, Senator from Ohio, uh, Iowa. Grassley Wyden convened Finance Committee Paid Family Leave Working Group. U.S. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Ranking Member Ron Wyden of Oregon today announced the formation of a bipartisan finance committee working group that will consider the issue of federal paid family leave policy. Senator Bill Cassidy, MD of Louisiana, and Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire will serve as co-chairs. Senators Tim Scott <laughs> of South Carolina, Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, Mike Crap-O Crap of Idaho, um, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, and Todd Young of Indiana and Sherrod Brown of Ohio will serve as members. Um, so here's my question. This thing's really gaining steam. I mean, it's everywhere. You got Mike Lee working on it. You got um, Marco Rubio working on it. You got Javanka pushing it. And now you got Grassley and Wyden at the committee level pushing it. So this is really, really gaining steam, right? This is getting towards the level of where, where jailbreak became universal among Republicans. Paid family leave, the creation of a new entitlement, new market-distorting entitlement built on a lie. So um, where where are all the libertarians? Now, I understand that if you look at their C3s, the Cato Institute will write articles against it. But I'm not seeing on an activist media level the same way they're flooding the zone against us on the issues dealing with sovereignty, security, and society them somehow being with me to aggressively push back against this stuff. I'm not seeing that. And this is what is bothering me about this progressive libertarian stuff. I'm only seeing the liabilities of the libertarianism and I'm not seeing any of the benefits from it. Somehow when it comes to these fiscal issues, I'm all out on a limb alone. So, you know, that's with that issue. And isn't it interesting that, you know, Grassley, after his drive-by, um, you know, mentality here, his drive-by 
service as chairman of Judiciary Committee that he got jailbreak passed when he had no business ever being the Judiciary Committee chairman because he knows nothing about the law. Now he goes to finance to screw us on that. Again, notice at every leverage point, every issue portfolio where we need a leader on the issues of our time, we have people who subscribe to the other side's view as the general, the point man on that very issue. So if it's healthcare, who's going to be the top Republican negotiator? A guy who believes in government-run healthcare. If it's education, it's going to be Lamar Alexander who believes in cradle-to-grave federal government control over education. If it's on immigration, it's going to be an open borders guy. If it's on law and order, it's going to be an open, a, a, a pro-criminal guy. Every single issue we have fake fights on. I mean, it's unbelievable. We're fighting over nonsense. And that's why we have nothing to fight over but subpoenas and uh, releasing the taxes and Mueller. Because frankly, on the issues, they're awfully pretty close to each other. On the, on the courts too, evidently. This is jo- Josh Blackman. I'm going back to this. Bogren was not comparing the beliefs of Catholics to the beliefs of the KKK. I understand that. But he was saying that legally, someone denying not servicing a homosexual wedding is like refusing to serve someone because they're black. And that is a very big problem. So that's with that. Let's go back to immigration. One of the things... um. I was, I'm working on that. I'm going to try to work with Mark Morgan and other people I know at ICE. Is there's a need for ICE to begin putting out more data? We should know every single month how many ICE detentions were placed on illegals charged with at least murder. Okay. You know, if you don't have the manpower to get everything, they should easily have that. They have all their detainers on record. Every month, you should easily be able to tell us this number of people were charged with murder. And that assumes, I understand, they might not get everyone, but at least give us the detainers you have. They're talking about six people dying over the course of a year or two in ICE custody of natural causes. And... and what it does is when we don't have our own narrative, we don't fight over real things. So the media is going to fill that vacuum and they'll say, no, we're not doing enough for illegals. And in fact, it's inhumane. It's inhumane the way we're um, treating treating these people. By the way, it's a, actually a funny thing, just so you know. If you look up the truth on this issue, you'll see that ICE, for fiscal year 2018... There's a death rate, a mortality rate of 2.25 per 100,000. If you add up the people in their custody and the number of deaths. If you look up state and state, so I don't have, I don't have the Bureau of Prisons. But what I do have is there's a state prison study done by DOJ from inmates 2001 to 2014. And the death rate was 256 per 100,000. Now, again, I understand on average, you're going to have a younger population in ICE than overall in, in regular prison. So, you know, if you're younger, you're farther away to dying. 
usually of natural causes. But just to give you a sense of how few people die in ICE custody, and then when you consider, especially ICE at the border, they're dealing with the ones that just came up from the insane trek of dehydration and diseases. It's a it's a mighty good track record. Again, not that the job of ICE is to revive the dead from you know people invading the country. It's to protect Americans, but they actually have a very good track record. But what I'm saying is, it's we have no counter narrative of how many Central American kids killed Americans or other illegals often, just in the Washington D.C. suburban area. Just in the last few months, I know of more than six. Just the ones covered. How many kill, you know, from DUI manslaughter? So that's what I'd like to know. They should have monthly, every month, how many people ICE has confirmed through their detainer requests how many illegals or non-citizens or both, you could break it down. Um, I don't need you to do all citizens. I don't need you to give me a denominator even. Oh, it's out of this many citizens. No, let the FBI, you know, they have their uniform crime reporting. And that gets very tough because remember, uniform crime reporting is voluntary. A lot of people forget that. Uniform crime statistics. So it undercounts a lot of crime. But ICE should have the ability, with the DHS databases, they should know everyone who is arrested for murder. Um, They should know that right away, their citizenship status. And every month, they should put that out. If you want to take a month to do it, so we'll be a month behind, but we'll have a running tally. Then we'll have what to fight about in this country. People need to know about this. People really, really need to know about this. You know, I look at the social transformation where nobody voted to bring in these gangs. And it is just amazing to watch. You take Frederick City, Maryland, okay? If you look at the 2000 census at American Fact Finder, and you look up, the total population of, um, what do you call it, of Central Americans, if you just look at Central Americans, it was, it's like 4,000. Okay, 4,000 individuals in that area. No, I'm sorry, I'm getting this wrong, actually. I'm getting it wrong. There were, well, let's put it this way. There were 1,281, 1,281 non-Mexican Hispanics, according to the census. You fast forward to um, 2017, 
And you know what that number is? 7,805. So it grew about sevenfold. Sevenfold. Just in 17 years. Sevenfold. Could you imagine that? And so much of it is driven. If you look, if you peel into the numbers, so much of that is driven by El Salvador, which you know is mainly driven by illegal immigration. And what that does is it messes up your legal immigrant population because where do they – so what happens is you know you start to have – we have tons of legal immigration, in my view, too much, too quickly, and you start to transform certain areas. But pound per pound, they're usually certainly better than the legals. They might struggle. And then you go and at the worst time, then you flood them with new people from the same countries that are illegal, tons of problems with gangs. Their kids get involved, and that's how you destroy an area. It's a no-brainer. Everyone knows that, that this is where it's going to come from. Okay? I mean, everyone knows that. WTOP News, this is this is from two years ago. They quoted this guy, um, Azanio Davila, the FBI's program manager for the Transnational Gang Task Force in the area. And he said, where you see immigrant populations, you will see the gang. Is it, they're not all doing that, but that is where you're going to find it. And the more you grow that, the more you're going to grow the gang. We're getting kids from other countries who have killed people down there, who have committed murders, who are coming here and recruiting. And they're coming here with one goal, the goal that the gangs are sending them here. I mean, you look at the census, it's unbelievable. You take a look at Prince George's County, Maryland. It was 13.8% foreign-born in 2000. 2017, it's 28%. And remember, this is not really factoring the new flows. You, you wait for that 2020 census, all these numbers will be much bigger. The trajectory is just busting. It's all the counties around D.C. It's um, it's just unbelievable. Another one is, you know, I know we have, um, I know we get a lot of emails from people in Virginia. I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about social transformation. I mean, Northern Virginia. So, you know, it started out with Fairfax County. That was the big, that was the biggie. Fairfax County. And but now it's it's in like in Woodbridge in Prince William County. You go farther south. It used to be a nice kind of rural-ish county. Suburban, certainly. And it's full of MS-13. Well, why? Why is it full of MS-13? Right? That's the big question. What really changed? What has changed in the area? Think about it. What has changed in the area? I think you know what has changed. 
It's all it's all the population. It's that simple. The number of people from these places has, has changed. No no one's no one's asking. No no one's asking the tough questions. At all. That's what's that, that, that's what's so sad here. They they I mean, you know, you look at Prince William County, it was it was like a handful of people um I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It was something like a few hundred Central Americans. And now there's thousands there. You can't, you can't have a country like that. You're not doing anyone favors. You're not doing immigrants favors either. What favor does it do to bring all the problems from El Salvador here? That's the question. And that's why I think we need more data out there. If, 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 why is ICE not putting out what I put out? And why do I have to grab it out of them? And I don't have the information. They're sitting on everything. They could instantaneously tell you, almost, especially the big high-profile crimes. Again, they do miss a lot because of the sanctuaries and everything. But especially at least the homicides, the vehicular manslaughters, they should have that on record. Who's an illegal? How many were settled as UACs? Who got DACA? They should have that. They're not putting it out. So, you know, the challenge for the next ICE director, in my view, is every bit as much of an issue with operational problems is really a PR problem. Because until this information gets out, we're not going to even have people fighting for the right things. And then, of course, nobody is talking about the infectious diseases. Nobody's talking about that. Just amazes me. 46 cases of mumps in Hidalgo County, Texas. That's the probably the most trafficked county. No one's talking about it. The local county officials have to talk about it. So therefore they say, no, this is not a problem. So the county official, um, Eduardo Eddie Olivares, he's the a health director of the health services. So he said, no, it didn't come from the immigrants. It was around Easter time when people were traveling to other states. Yeah. Okay, so you have the most sickly people coming north. So we have McAleenan admitting that they're coming in large numbers from countries where poverty and disease are rampant. They've met, never seen a doctor, received immunizations, or lived in sanitary conditions. That's a quote from McAleenan. We know that even after that, they're coming up under the worst conditions, quote, in close quarters on trains and buses that smugglers procure, which hasten the spread of communicable diseases. That's a quote from Randy Howe, the head of operations for CBP's Office of Field Operations. We know that there was a massive mumps outbreak in Honduras right before the caravans came. We know that two weeks ago, AP reported that authorities in northern Mexico detained in Tamaulipas 289 Central Americans 
including children with measles and other illnesses. We know that the caravans, most of the caravans left from the the, the, um, northern city in Honduras called San Pedro Sula, which that city alone had 1,336 reported cases of mumps as of April. We know that that ICE facilities in Texas had 200 people quarantined for mumps. And we know that CBP directly releases tens of thousands of people without screenings or vaccinations. And you're freaking telling me the problems from, oh, they travel to other states, not from people from third world countries? Are you kidding me? Then there's another interesting thing. You know, as we talked about, they're coming from Africa. They're coming from Congo. You're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. I'm not joking here. The Senate has a bill. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I don't know if they marked it up. They were going to mark it up this week. I don't know what the status of it is. But there was a bill to spend money on Congo. Um, It was called something like Combating Ebola in Congo. Oh, S-1340, S-1340 Ebola Eradication Act. Okay. They're going to give money to Congo. It's like, so I'm thinking, but you're letting them into your country? I mean, just Google it. Google hundreds of Africans at Bridge in Laredo. Okay, just Google that. You'll see there was an AP article from last week. There were hundreds in near, 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 near Nuevo Laredo, going into Laredo. I mean, forget about immigrant, just on health grounds, you have an obligation to close the border. They're coming for the most disease-ridden countries. The UN is going nuts over the Ebola outbreak there. CBP tells me they haven't yet had a case of Ebola. Not that they would tell us if they did. But then, you know where else they're coming from? They're coming from Brazil. I don't know what it is if it's because of the Amazon or other issues. Brazil is probably the most disease-ridden country along with Venezuela in the Western Hemisphere. It's got everything. It's got the, all these mysterious um, paralysis type of diseases like polio. It's got tons of measles. It's got typhoid, hepatitis, malaria, everything. So it's got like all this stuff in Latin America, but they also have a lot of this. They have yellow fever there too. Tons of outbreaks. You wouldn't know this, but we have we have tons of people coming from Brazil. They're not going to tell you that. I just don't understand. Here, I got the numbers right here. I got a super secret document. So just so you know, speaking of data, so in terms of, they only break down the monthly apprehensions by four countries, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. To get the country-by-country country apprehension numbers, from the entire globe, you have to wait until the next year. But I will tell you, they have up-to-date numbers, and I have sitting in my hands here, I can't publish it, but I have a document of the first two weeks worth of apprehensions in May. It's the first two weeks of May, just for Texas, not the rest of the border. 510 Brazilians were apprehended just in two weeks, just in Texas. 
Think about that. And if they're families, they're released immediately. As McAleenan said today, whether they assert a credible fear or not. And they're, they're starting to come from a lot of countries. There are almost a thousand from Cuba. There were, where is this? 590 from Nicaragua. That's the next shoe to drop. Now, obviously, still overwhelmingly. By the way, and by the way, they're coming, just so you know, Guatemala was the big one for two, three years. Now more, it, it appears that more are coming from Honduras, at least in Texas. That is the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest mumps outbreak country in the world. And then we have 46 people getting mumps in that very county. And then we're like, uh, um, I don't think so. Uh, it's not caused by that. We're being lied to folks. That's why we need data. But it's very hard. That's the problem. But most of all, we need an argument. We need something to fight over. Stop fighting over the fight. Let's fight over real outcomes. That's our goal here today. Hope today's show was informative. I left a lot on the table, a lot of stuff in my stack. Hopefully we'll get to tomorrow. As always, I, I'm sorry if I don't have time to answer all your emails, but you could email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.